0: Welcome to Studies in the Scriptures with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, a broadcast ministry of Return to the Word, and made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome back to Studies in the Scriptures. Our purpose in this study is to understand the three tenses of salvation as derived from a consistent application and sound rules of biblical interpretation. Let's start first with some basic definitions, and let's start with a definition of justification. Justification, it is a divine act whereby an infinitely holy God judicially declares a believing sinner to be righteous and acceptable before him because Christ has borne the sinner's sin on the cross and has become our righteousness. When I talk about our position in Christ, this is what I'm talking about that we have been justified in Christ. How about sanctification? Well again, here's a good definition. Sanctification. It is a divine provision of God whereby the Holy Spirit provides victory over the power of sin in the life of a willing believer who chooses to rely upon Christ as he allows God to conform him to the image of Christ. When I'm talking about our Condition in our life, I'm indirectly referring to this, but our condition is a little different than sanctification because our condition refers to our walk now, how we are walking by faith or not walking by faith, how we are living according to Christ in us or not living according to Christ in us. But sanctification is more about God's desire and God's empowerment to make us more like Christ. Our condition. Is more like the check engine light telling us how we are doing. Sanctification is more like the owner's manual telling us everything that has been provided for us in our journey of life and how to overcome sin. What about glorification? Well, glorification, it is a divine act whereby in order to enjoy the very presence of God in heaven, believers are completely and eternally conformed spiritually and bodily to the image of Christ without a sin nature and sin cursed bodies these definitions are going to be important as we move forward this is our fourth study so far the principles of bible study that we have looked at so far act as limits or guideposts that provide direction to keep us on track in our journey of always looking for god's intended meaning in the text so now We are going to apply some of these tools, and like we said before, our desire is to fulfill the command of 2 Timothy 2.15, to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is a reason I keep repeating this verse, because it sums up the problem. Every time God's people get off track in their study of the Word of God, it is either because they have not been diligent in their study and they have taken the lazy or easy way out, or they have failed to apply a literal hermeneutic and look for God's intended meaning. So the first area of the Christian faith that we are going to apply these principles of Bible study to, that we have looked at, are the three tenses of salvation. Very few Christians understand how to rightly divide the scriptures in this area. Far less than 1% of Christians understand the concept. Most pastors and seminary professors don't understand what I'm about to teach you. Age is not the same thing as maturity. I'm an example of that. But also age is not the same thing as spiritual maturity. And many Christians who have been saved for years do not understand what we're going to study in this lesson. And after you learn how to study the Bible, this is probably the most important lesson that you can learn. When you combine or mix the different tenses of salvation together, you create confusion in your mind about what is really necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life. It causes confusion of how God wants you to live now, what he expects of you and it robs you of the joy he wants you to have in the Christian faith. Many people ask Jesus into their heart, but that is not the gospel message. Many people commit their lives to Christ, but these things save no one, and they do not provide any assurance of salvation. But when you gain an understanding of the three tenses of salvation, it clears up the confusion and provides the believer in Christ with the complete assurance of, from God's word, that you will spend eternity with our Lord and Savior. So where does our assurance come from? Well, it comes from the word of God. It is not that I feel saved. It's not an emotion. It's based on God's truth written down for us. So you need to understand this stuff first for yourself, but then because you have the responsibility as a Christian to share it with others. Christians need to hear this message. When it comes to understanding the word salvation and how it is used in the word of God, the first thing that we need to understand is that a word's definition is determined not only by its etymology, but there's other things to consider. Now, etymology is the study of a word's origin and development in language, but also how a word is used in a given context. A word may have a general meaning and it may also have a technical meaning. That technical meaning will be determined by its usage in context. Let's use the word bark. I could be referring to tree bark or a dog bark. Nails could be fingernails or nails I build a house with. How about a pool? I could be talking about a swimming pool or a pool table or a pool of drool by my dog. A bolt is a type of a metal fastener, but it can also refer to a single ray of lightning. Or it can be used as a verb to mean run very fast. What determines the definition of the word in each of these cases? Context. Hear me carefully on this. The noun salvation or the verb save can refer to different things depending on the context. The etymology of salvation has the idea of Deliverance from someone or something being rescued from some sort of peril or danger or enemy. This is true in the Old and New Testaments, but in every context, we need to determine what kind of deliverance is being indicated and from what is the deliverance. Generally speaking, there are two types of deliverance in the Bible physical deliverance from physical danger, or spiritual deliverance, which is what we're about to cover. But before we do, I want to show you an example of physical deliverance so you can clearly see the difference and begin to train your thinking to always determine the context. Psalm 3 tells us this. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Notice he's talking about physical enemies that rise up against him. Let's pick it up with verse three. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. "'Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God.'" Notice that, "'Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. "'For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. "'You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. "'Salvation belongs to the Lord. "'Your blessing is upon your people.'" The verb save in verse seven in this context speaks of physical deliverance. "'You have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. "'You have broken the teeth of the ungodly.'" David is talking about being delivered from his enemies, specifically his son and those that just joined forces with him. So the usage of a word in its context largely determines the meaning. And if we go back to our principles from before, that scripture has one intended meaning. When David talks about salvation, he's talking about physical deliverance. Let's look at some more. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. David is clearly talking about deliverance from a physical enemy. Let's look at one more passage in the New Testament about deliverance from a health problem. Matthew 9, we'll start in verse 20. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. The word translated, well, is the same word for saved in the Greek. It's just translated differently in the English. In other words, Jesus said, your faith has saved you. These are just three examples out of many, probably hundreds, that we could find about physical deliverance or salvation in the Bible. So we need to be careful. Look at the context. Quite often the subject in the New Testament is spiritual deliverance, but not always. Let's talk about the three tenses of salvation. What I want you to see, especially in the New Testament, is that when the Bible talks about spiritual salvation, there is a past usage, a present usage, and a future usage. If you are a believer in Christ who is walking by means of the Spirit, you can rightly say that you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved in the future. If someone asks, are you saved?, I can honestly say I was, I am, and I will be. See, the Bible is very clear that spiritual salvation may refer to any one of the three different tenses, which are distinct and need to be understood clearly. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul is writing to Titus and giving him this reminder of how they both were before they ever got saved. Now, why would he do this? Because sometimes we forget our condition before God saved us. We have selective memories. We like to forget the bad things that we've done. This is why pride is such a problem. The Israelites had the same problem. They had selective memories as they wandered in the wilderness. They would get their eyes off the Lord and start complaining. Numbers 11 tells us that they said, we remember the fish, which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. They were conveniently forgetting the whippings, the cruel working conditions, and living in poverty like living in slums. You do the same thing. I do the same thing. We tend to remember how good we were not how bad we were in the eyes of a perfect and holy God. As we learn and grow in grace, we see things more and more from God's point of view. The more we grow, the more we should realize how bad off we were, and this should cause us to give thanks to God even more for his loving kindness towards us. Sometimes we look at the world and we think that we're missing out on a life of great fun, but God also reminds us how bad off the unsaved really are. They're foolish, disobedient, and deceived. They are enslaved to the lust of their sin nature. They have no choice. They live in envy, hating one another. It's hard to believe Christians want to live like that. Titus 3 tells us, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice in verse five, saved is in the past tense. This is something that was already true of Paul and something that was already true of Titus, to whom he was writing. When the Bible speaks of spiritual salvation, it is either speaking of deliverance from the penalty of sin in hell, deliverance from the power of sin in your daily life, or deliverance from the presence of sin in glorified bodies in heaven. When the Bible speaks of a believer, it's speaking of a past tense salvation. There is no such thing as, I've always been saved. Oh, I've made people upset over the years with this. I've met people who always claim to be a Christian, that they've always just loved God that's nonsense. The Bible says that's not true. When someone tells you that they are a believer, ask them if they can look back to a time when they were not saved, because you want to see if God in his grace has brought them to the point in their thinking where they understood what Christ did for them, if they came to faith in him. No one is saying that they must be able to point to the exact minute, hour, or day that they were saved, but they should be able to recognize that there was a point in time that they came to faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross alone, trusting the gospel of grace. If you are a believer, there was a point in time when you understood your helpless condition before a holy God. People that are saved should be able to understand that there was a past when they did not understand the need for God's grace. So when you're talking to someone about the gospel, you want to listen carefully to see if there was a past where they didn't understand their helpless condition, if there was a past when they didn't know the grace of God. If people say, I've always been a Christian, most often that means the person has never been born again. People like to assume because they were baptized as a baby, raised in a Christian home, went to a Christian church, or that their parents were Christians, that it means they are a Christian. But nobody can say, I've always been born physically, and the same is true of salvation. Nobody can say that they've always been born again. The very idea of being born again means a point in time occurrence. There should be a personal history before God brought them to salvation, where they saw their lost condition and were transferred into the family of God. Salvation from the penalty of sin is only possible through the gospel of grace, God's gift of life paid for by the shed blood of Christ. So here we see in Titus 3.5 that he, God, saved us. He delivered us. But what were we saved from? Well, we were saved from the penalty of sin, death, or separation from God for all eternity. This is the destiny of every unsaved soul, eternity apart from God in the lake of fire. This is where we would be headed if it were not for God's grace. Ephesians 2, you probably know these verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The verb phrase, you have been saved, is even more pronounced in the Greek. Paul in the Greek uses a present tense state of being verb, you are, with a participle in the perfect tense. And the passive voice that describes your state of being, having been saved. This is called a perfect periphrastic. There's no good equivalent for this in the English language. It has the idea you are having been saved. That is why the New King James says you have been saved, emphasizing the perfect passive participle. The King James says you are saved because it is emphasizing the present tense reality. Both are accurate, but the Greek is more complete because it includes both ideas. The present tense verb indicates that you as a believer, because Paul is writing to believers, are continually in this state of being, meaning it's a permanent salvation that cannot be lost. The perfect tense of the participle includes a completed action with continuing results. And the passive voice of the participle indicates that the action was done to you by someone else, God. So let's go back to verse 4. Read this again, but let me read it while adding some points of emphasis. In the first three verses, Paul reminded them again of their condition before salvation. And just like in Titus 3, he then uses the contrasting connective, but. And he says, starting in verse 4, but, in contrast to your selfish and depraved character, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are continually in the state of having been saved. And he raised us up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do this? That, the purpose clause, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How can he demonstrate this? For by his grace you are continually in the state of having been saved through faith, and that continual state of having been saved is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not of works. Why? Purpose Clause so that not anyone may boast. Even in the English, by the words of verse 8, we can see that our past salvation is a completed action in the past, which continues. This is the basis for eternal security. Let's look at John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world... Through him might be saved. Here, the verb saved is in the subjunctive mood, which is not past tense but it is the tense of possibility. Anyone in the world might be saved at a point in time if God saves them, if they come to faith in Christ, and that becomes evident from the human perspective when they believe in Christ alone for salvation. Believing is the only condition for salvation, the condemnation of the world or the world perishing is in reference to the penalty of sin, death. Now hold on to that teaching and let's look at Acts 16. Because in Acts 16, we read about an unbeliever who asked Paul and Silas a question. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Here, the verb saved is in the future tense, but it cannot be referring to the future tense salvation, also known as glorification, because they are talking to an unbeliever. It's in the future tense because the Philippian jailer was not yet saved. One cannot be saved from the presence of sin until he is saved from the penalty of sin, and one cannot be saved from the power of sin in his life until he is saved from the penalty of sin. So when we talk about past, present, and future tense salvation, this is from the perspective of a believer. In reference to an unbeliever, all three are yet future. This is why John 3.17 is in the subjunctive tense. It's a hypothetical tense. And in Acts 16.31 is in the future tense. They're talking about unbelievers like Nicodemus and the Philippian jailer who hypothetically could be saved by believing in Christ. But once the Philippian jailer came to faith, then he could say, I have been saved past tense. He could say, by God's grace, I am in a continuous state of having been saved through faith. But notice carefully that the tense of the verb does not in itself determine the meaning of the verb save or the noun salvation. The tense may often indicate the meaning, but it is the context that must be the final determiner of the meaning and which of the three categories it fits into. These examples all refer to deliverance from the penalty of sin, which is always a past reality for the believer. Theologically, we call this justification. This refers to God declaring a believer righteous. This means that God now sees believers in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, he can declare them righteous in his sight because Jesus paid the full penalty for their sin. For the believer in Christ, the past tense of salvation happened at a point in time. That is the time factor. The condition under which this occurs is that it happens by God's grace alone through placing of your faith alone in Christ alone. A 160 times the New Testament says salvation is by faith alone. Once we have put our trust alone in Christ alone for eternal salvation, once we have passed from death to life, then and only then can we talk to God about the provision that he has made for us to have victory over the power of sin in our daily Christian lives. As believers, we have been saved from sin's penalty and the slavery to the dictates of our sin nature. But the sin nature still tries to rule and reign in our lives just as before. We still live in Satan's world, under his world system, and God wants to free us from the spiritual damage in our lives. We've already been saved from sin's damnation. Now God wants to save us from sin's damaging effects in our life, which is where we will pick it up next time. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path.